Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I remember when I left number 10, Jamie Rubin, who used to do my job for Madeleine Albright when she was Secretary of State in the US, and he said, one of the hardest things you find when you get out of these jobs is it takes you a while to find out what you really think again, because you're so set in the tram lines of government policy. So today we're joined by Alistair Campbell. He was the press secretary under Tony Blair. He was the director of communications, credited with the modern era of communications and politics. He's a huge mental health advocate. He's written books. He's also done an extraordinary amount on the criminal justice system as well. So what a perfect guest. Let's get into this with Alistair Campbell. This is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAS in association with the UK. Here we go. Then. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining us. And yes, this is Alistair Campbell. You might have even heard Alistair on his own podcast, which is called The Rest is Politics. And he co-hosts that with Rory Stewart. And it's a huge podcast. It's always in the charts. And on this particular episode that you recorded with me, we talk about mental health, drinking culture, Alistair's own journey with drinking and his problematic behaviour. We also talk about drug-taking behaviours in Westminster criminal justice reform across the globe but he's also his own journey with the war on drugs and how he's thought about it over the years and his position on it now communications and how important that is to to social justice reforms how do we not speak to Alistair Campbell about communications of course we do a couple of little caveats one this was recorded in the summer so it's just towards the end of Boris Johnson's term in office and of course since then we've had numerous governments um so just to give you some context of where we are at the time and also from my side another apology because yes i recorded this with a cold i recorded this voiceover with a cold because i now have a little one and that's exactly what they do to you they permanently give you a cold chances are i'm going to have one for the rest of my life so ignore my snuffly toes this is all about alistair campbell find my twitter and thank you for this conversation find the work of leap uk as well at uk leap twitter and instagram and ukleap.org which is our facebook and our website. So without further ado, this is Alistair Campbell. Let's go for chronological order in this. You you were part of the last government, arguably, to be the most progressive on drug policy. Since you've left, it's all gone back, and quite considerably. So to start with, the reclassification from cannabis from... B to C. Uh, what was the media like at that time? Because it was it's a very different media to now. But in terms of the politics, how do you coordinate it with the media, the evidence as well? What was that whole scene like at that point? Oh, it's very hard for me to remember. It's you know, it's like twenty odd years ago now. Um, I think generally, because we had established credentials on crime, generally. 
you know, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. I think that was one of our, one of our more successful strategic framings because Labour historically was able to be identified or characterized or mythologized as being on the side of the criminal rather than the side on the side of the criminal rather than the victim, which was always a bit of a myth, but you know, that's often how our politics works with our with our, you know, the Tory party and, and with their media supporters. So I think that maybe allowed a more intelligent debate than you might otherwise have had. <clears throat> um I think it's one of those areas. It's interesting that you defined it as progressive. I thought your first question might have been along the lines of, given you had such a big majority and you had so much power, why didn't you do more? Um, but it's interesting you define it as progressive because I guess it was a step in that direction. And you're right that the whole debate has gone backwards. But I think it was one where the debate was evolving and developing in different parts of the world in different ways. And it was one of those things that was sort of people were finding quite interesting. And I think because it was focused on, if you like, the soft end of the drugs market. Um, and then, of course, I think the other thing that happened, I was in Portugal last week, and it was interesting there talking to people how, because they really were out there. They were, you know, right out in terms of a, a completely different approach. There was a lot, if you remember, there was a lot of debate about that going on. And therefore, you know, a sort of slight mild reclassification of cannabis didn't seem anything like as radical or, quotes, threatening as what was happening there. Added to which, the evidence base from Portugal seemed to be quite kind of positive. Um, and so I, I don't remember, and this could be just because, you know, pain has no memory, I don't remember it being a kind of really difficult if i think of all the things that were really difficult i wouldn't put this in that category um that doesn't mean if you go and look up i'm sure there were newspapers that were running campaigns against it and saying this is a kind of you know open door to you know the nation to become a nation of drug addicts and drug dealers and all that stuff but i don't remember that as being the kind of background to it i don't really remember it as being that big a deal that's interesting in itself because, as you mentioned, the, the context of it. So you had Portugal going for their decriminalisation. You had California that were pushing ahead with their medical programmes of cannabis. And, yeah, so this country in the late 90s pushed the classification from B to C, which meant it was a, it was a, a softer penalty, essentially. Yeah. So you mentioned how that kind of tough-on-crime approach works, and it still does now. Yeah, we've got the Labour Party, which is still trying to almost out-muscle the conservatives on the tough on crime, especially on drugs, they are using that as a as a as a weapon almost. Mm. How do you see now uh, the context of this issue? <laughs> Has it gone back to, in your view? Um, I mean, I saw recently. I think in one of the was it the local elections or one of the by elections that, you know, the Lib Dems were sort of getting under attack from Labour for being quote soft on drugs, etc. Um, I think it has gone back as a debate. Um, look, I, I understand and I accept that it's it's still it's still jury out and it's still a very very sensitive issue for an awful lot of people. But you know, I think we one of the worst things about populism, and we've, let's let's be honest, you know, Britain has been horribly infected by this populist virus. Brexit and Johnson are the most sort of obvious kind of manifestations of that. But right around the world, you're seeing poli really important policy debates that aren't happening on the basis of evidence. Uh, they're happening on the basis of populist politics. And, you know, I understand why Labour don't want to get pinned back in that corner of being soft on crime, etc. Um, but I do think this is an area where we just, you know, I was, when I was working in government, I was, you know, I was up there with the kind of drugs is a scourge, drug dealers are, you know, evil people, uh, the, the tough on crime approach has got to be right, but it hasn't worked. That's the, you know you, you can't. Nobody can pretend that the that the approach that we've taken on drugs has worked. You see it in Scotland, you see it in England, you see it in Wales, you see it right across the UK. Um, now that means that you can't. It's like you know I, I see this very much as well as being related to the criminal justice system, and. You know, I do quite a lot of work on mental health in, in, in prisons and stuff. And you, you go in there and, you, you know, you just see people, who, they're in prison because they're addicts, you know, and they've committed crime because they're addicts. Now, I get that they're criminals and they've committed crimes and they've got to be punished. I get that. But is that really 
is both those state both that those processes is that really the right way to to deal with those people some of them yes some of them they're really bad people and it's better that they're out of society's way right some of them but an awful lot of them they're not they're just they're just people who've you know had a really bad run of luck terrible upbringing all sorts of stuff going up in their background you know and they, and they become addicts and i think until we understand that you know we have to treat this as a as a public health issue as much as a crime issue i don't come at this by the way when i was at university one of the reasons i had such a strong view on drugs i never took drugs i was i always used to i mean i was very chippy and i used to go around if i found people were selling drugs i would you know i would literally go and sort of call them out and fight them if i had to i was a bit mad about it and um but i think the people that get into that and a lot of the people who get into it it's like it's just not the way to help them and and if 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 you end up getting somebody who gets into trouble because of an addiction and they get into the criminal justice system and they get into prison and they get into jail and then they're just on this spiral they're never going to get off it and one of the most there's two moments actually both of which happened since i left downing street that really have had a big impact on my kind of thinking on this. The first was reading Johan Harry's book, Chasing the Scream. It was just like, it was like, it's very, I read a lot of books, but it's very rare I read a book and I think, you know, I've read that book and it's made me change my, change my mind about something. It was just, I mean, obviously he was coming from a kind of standpoint that he already held and therefore maybe he was building his argument as he went, but he built it so convincingly by going to literally every aspect of the drug trade every aspect from the the gangs to the policing to the to the victims to the addicts to the crime the whole thing it was a brilliant piece of research and at the end you couldn't get to the end of that book and think this is working it's not uh and so that was one thing that was very important um and then the second thing was one of our uh, sons Callum he got into trouble with alcohol and he, you know, he, he, we, we got him into, uh, he, he was in really, really quite a bad way. We tried this rehab place in Ireland. It didn't work. Eventually, we got him into this place in Scotland, up in Peebles, near Peebles. And it was a nice place. And touch wood, he hasn't had a drink for nine years since he was there, right? But what was, and we used to go up for these kind of family visits and stuff like that. But what was really interesting was that the place was kept going by probably a, a good a good minority and maybe even a majority of the people the residents in there they were from holland they were mainly heroin addicts and they were there at the expense of the dutch government and they were basically there for as long as it took and the dutch government had worked out that you know if we can get the the hardest cases cleaned up for the long term or even get some of them cleaned up for the long term we're going to save so much money in the future. So this very expensive rehab place, but, you know, it cost us quite a lot to get Callum through it. But they were there, fully funded by the Dutch government. Now, so that was the other thing. I thought, you know, okay, you go to Holland, you go to Holland, you'll see drug addicts, you'll see the drug trade, etc. However, they have got on top of the really severe addictions better, I think, than we have. You, you mentioned there that at university, you know, you were anti-drugs, as it were. What is that timeline for you, having gone from that position to now where you are quite quite prominent in reform because, you know, you tweet about more on drugs quite often, hence why I've come to you. Where do you think in your personal timeline things did start to change? You mentioned some of the points there, but at what point was it really solidified that things aren't working? Relatively recently, I'd say. Um I think this, the thing is that when you're in government and you're dealing with so many different things and you get used to what your line of attack is and what your line of defence is. And and also, don't forget, I was the spokesman. I wasn't the kind of Home Secretary. I wasn't, you know, contrary to the mythology, I wasn't the Deputy Prime Minister. I was kind of whatever the on the drugs say, it would have been David Blunkett when he was Home Secretary or Jack Straw when he was Home Secretary. You know, it was their line. Now, they might they would be into these debates and those debates might be changing, but ultimately they were setting the frame. And my job, in so far as I had any contact with it, was to go out and explain that. It wasn't My job wasn't to go out and say, actually, I'm on a bit of a journey here and I'm, I'm changing my mind. That was, that was not my job. So I think that, but I think it was one of those things where 
I remember when I left Number 10, Jamie Rubin, who used to do my job for Madeleine Albright when she was Secretary of State in the US, and he said, one of the hardest things you find when you get out of these jobs is it takes you a while to find out what you really think again. Because you're so set in the tram lines of government policy. I, I kind of saw my existence as kind of, if you like, sub, giving my brain over to Tony Blair. So that when I woke up in the morning and turned on the radio, the telly or read a paper, I was thinking like him. Now, as it happens, we thought alike about a lot of things. But I think once you get out, says on my Twitter feed, used to be Tony Blair spokesman, now my own. Um, you know, that's kind of... So it took me a long time. But I think it was part of that. And I start... And then I think the other thing is going into prisons, I think. That was a big... Th- to go into prisons and to talk to people about the stories of how they got there, be it through drink or through drugs, uh, and getting into petty crime and then getting into slightly worse crime and then getting done and then getting into the system and then getting into prison and then trying to clean up in prison but finding it very hard to do there because there's, you know, they can get drugs, then coming out with good intentions but finding that there's no support, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that had a big impact. Um, and then, as I say, the, the, the book, jo- Johan's book had a big impact and, and, and Callum's, um, Callum's treatment at Castle Craig. So a combination of those things, really. You, you mentioned previous Home Secretaries, ones that you, you worked with. Uh, shortly after Tony Blair left office, it went to Gordon Brown. And then the reclassification happened again the other way. So arguably very, very less progressive and against evidence at the time. Did you keep an eye on that episode? I mean, at that point, I was kind of, I was in a, after I left, I was in a phase of kind of trying to get my life back together and get away from stuff. So I wasn't, I wasn't kind of on the rampage about it. I was just like, well, I did feel generally that on too many issues, Gordon was sort of defining himself against Tony rather than against the Tories. And I think maybe that was one of them. Um, And also, I think Gordon probably is somebody who, you know, genuinely and in a, from a principled position, maybe does is a bit closer to that position that I, I used to hold. Um, and, you know, and it's the whole thing about, you know, gateway drugs and if you liberalise on one end, you liberalise, you then end up liberalising at the other end and is that the right course? You know, these are difficult, sensitive issues. Um, but I just, it's one of those things that I see it a lot more clearly now than I used to. Um, and I feel, look, I still... I still come at it, I guess, from the mental health perspective. I mean, I think if you're in my position where you've got, you know, a limit, you, you've, I've got a voice, I can use my voice to do different things, but I can't kind of do everything. And, and so I, you know, I've, I very much, I mean, at the moment, you know, Brexit, I put a lot into that. I put a lot in the moment to sort of calling out the Tories for who and what they are and particularly Johnson. Um, and then there's the mental health stuff. And, and, and that's kind of where I see my, energy's going and I would put insofar as I have a, a view and any role to play in this area that you're specialized in it would be I, I would see it in my world as a kind of subsection of the mental health agenda um, that doesn't mean by the way that I don't think you know people who are making millions and millions out of drug dealing shouldn't be in jail and it doesn't mean that I think you've got to be very very careful about you know really going the whole hog um, on liberalisation, decriminalisation. But at the same time, I think as a general observation, the so-called war on drugs has failed and it needs a complete rethink. And, and I think Labour I think Labour should be a big part of that. And I think that, you know, generally, I think, I just think, look, this is, this is to my mind, the worst government we have ever had, <laughs> certainly in my lifetime, possibly even in our history, and right across the piece, they get everything wrong. I don't give them credit for anything because I don't think they've done anything well. Not a single thing have they done well, in my view. But I think on this, you know, they're still stuck in the Michael Howard prison works. They're still stuck in the, you know... I mean, all, lots of them take drugs, by the way. We know that. They're all sort of merrily snorting away in the kind of, you know, posh boy dinner parties. But they, they basically, you know... The, the, for the politics of it, they're still stuck on those tram lines, and I just think it's, you know, it, I'm not I'm not saying I know what they should do, but I'm saying at a minimum there has to be an acceptance that the current approach is not working, and there has to be a rethink. Uh, I'm definitely going to touch upon mental health because this is a big note I've got beside me. But 
Larry touched upon it. This is something I did want to speak to you about because I was going to go, the question was going to be angled at the, the drinking culture of Westminster. Yeah. But as you've alluded to, we know that there's other things going on as well. So what's, what's not necessarily your experience of that, but what is your view of that whole bubble of, you know, the, the hypocrisy that goes with MPs that consume drugs but don't have their privileges taken away from them in life versus the people that take them on the street, they've got addictions and lose everything, and potentially lose it even more under, under the current strategies. Yeah. Well, it's it, just just briefly on the drink thing, by the way, I mean, I, I recognise that although alcohol is legal in a way that drugs are not, illegal, not, you know, narcotics are not, um, I recognise from my own experience and the experience of my son and other members, friends and family, that addiction is addiction. And if you get addicted to substances and habits that are harmful for you that's that's the same path and you know and maybe there was a part of me that my kind of loathing of anything to do with drugs was about a kind of defensive justification of my own sort of you know like drink addiction's fine it's kind of you know that's manly and it's real and it's earthy whereas drugs is particularly at university is all about you know you feet public schoolboys and and all that sort of stuff, um, but I think there is I think there is a you know a nauseous hypocrisy. I look here's you, you won't believe this, Jason. Right, I'll tell you something. Do you know I've never ever seen cocaine in my life. I've never seen anybody take cocaine in my entire life. Right, <laughs> now, and I've not had a sheltered existence. I've really not. But I've never seen anybody take cocaine. I've barely ever seen anybody smoke marijuana. Um, I've only ever seen people injecting themselves when I've been on. Vi- you know, visiting places or when I'm maybe down on the canal or whatever. Um, so I've, I've not really, it's not really my world. Um, but I do know, and I'm, you know, and I'm quite good at reading people and, and I've seen it. I've seen the effects of it. I've seen, I've seen people under the influence and I know the signs. And um, look, and, you know, I don't know, but if you go through Cameron's cabinet, I don't know about, actually, I don't know about Johnson's, I don't know them as well, but, you know, you go through Cameron's cabinet, there's no doubt a lot of them were, you know, pretty habitual drug users, I would say. Um, Now, some of them, I think, have been quite open about it. Most of them haven't because they just, they've moved. And some of them, I I don't know whether some of them still take, you know, drugs regularly. I just don't know. But I know that the culture, I think that in a funny sort of way, the two worlds I know best, media and politics, I think actually the drinking culture has gone in the opposite direction to most of the public. I think we've become a massively drinking culture. Um, and people going about the figures, but don't forget, there's an awful lot of teetotalers in this country. So when you get the average consumptions, if you take out the people who never drink and the alcoholics and the, you know, rel- people who don't drink for religious reasons, an awful lot of British people do not drink. So the figures for consumption are actually per head of population very very high, and binge drinking is is massive. So, but in the in the commons, I don't I don't know this for a fact, but you talk to the people who work there in the bars and stuff. They say the drinking is nothing like it used to be, but I think the drugs has gone in the opposite direction. And as you said, there's a lot of people on record that 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 even laugh about their drug taking. You know, we we got Michael Gove that's made some quite. Uh, self-deprecating jokes about it. Uh, release uh, a friend of our organisation. They got a bunch of playing cards where politicians are with their confessions of drug use. So it's it is out there that people have consumed. Well, you had that. My my, do- my daughter's a comedian, and she did a very funny sketch during the Tory leadership contest about you know going through them, and it, it went up to Rory Stewart saying he took opium. You know, it was going like, you know, well, I took cannabis, but I didn't inhale it. Well, I took cannabis and I inhaled it. Well, actually, I've taken cocaine. Well, I once injected myself. Well, I took opium. Because <laughs> you, you do a podcast with Rory Stewart. And, yeah, he he, he smoked opium at a wedding, uh, which is, which again, it's, it's one of those really tricky contextual contextualizations because in that context, it was kind of culturally what you yeah. did so yeah. that that's the other aspect about why the culture is so important uh, and you did you know you've mentioned a few times that you you have had your own experience with, with the drinking culture uh, and, and personally have been affected by it um, so how much does uh, does the lifestyle of politics lead to that because you know the, the small glimpse i've had of the westminster bubble it is pretty full-on so does it just the lifestyle lend itself to substance use possibly i mean i I think I'm a, I think I'm an addictive personality, and I was well. Maybe I wasn't lucky, but I think that 
the the insofar as I was able to do a decent job for Tony Blair, I think he was quite lucky that at that time my addiction was work and politics and getting rid of the Tories and then helping Labour. That was my addiction. That's what I woke up and thought about every single morning in a way that maybe when I was in the throes of alcohol addiction, I'd wake up and think, when can I get away with my first drink? Um, and I do think that whole thing about letting off steam and, um, you know, pressure valve and all that, and, and you have to find, it's just, we all know this in our own lives, it's the easiest thing to do, right? I've worked really hard. That you've seen that in this whole party gate, you know, scandal. That Johnson's even having said there were no parties, his justification now is well, it was about letting off steam, and I went to try and boost their morale. I mean, you know, even though he's probably lying, that is the kind of that is the explanation, and we all know that. You know, we all know. I, I can remember when I used to work, when I used to drink a lot, that I'd work hard, and then it was like I deserve to go and drink a lot. And I would feel better in doing that. So, and then once you do that, day after day after day after day, before you know it, you've you've got a real problem. Um, is Westminster any different to any other kind of high pressured workplace? I think it probably is. I think it probably is, and I'm not sure that the subsidised bars and the and all that stuff really helps. There's also uh, Professor Knight, one of the the advisors of the ACMD, he said that there's a lot of alcohol culture in regards to sponsorship of various different ways of how they can get to the MPs. Is that something we should look at? How? how... Oh, yeah. I, I, I did a, a documentary for the BBC a few years ago about Britain's alcohol problem and, uh, you know, talking to the people who have campaigned on this for years. I mean, I, it's like sometimes, if you particularly if you're watching sport, sport which is all about being healthy and being fit and exercise and energy and all that stuff, and yet a lot of days, you basically, for quite a while, it used to be cigarettes, and then for a long time, it was basically alcohol gambling, alcohol gambling, alcohol gambling. And gambling now is the, is the number one. I think there's a move against that. But yeah, the sponsorship is, uh, you know, look, these companies don't do it for the good of their health. And the, the one that I remember did my head in was one of the World Cups, and it said uh, there was these adverts going around the, around the perimeter the whole time, and it was it Carlsberg, I think, or Carlsberg, one of the big beers. I can't remember which one. It said "official beer of the England team." Right? You're watching the World Cup, right? Or the Euros, or it was. And there's these super fit athletes going around, and the, the advert is the official beer of the England team. And it's designed to make you think, you know, you can't really do football without beer. You know. So with your uh, communications head on along these themes if we were to set about new policies alcohol and drugs do you think there's ways we can look at this and make it better in terms of what we could do in limited sponsorship and advertisement how would you form a policy around what we already know and learned i think i would i would i would go back to the smoking campaigns um i would revisit all of the arguments that were made by the smoking lobby. I would expose the fact that they're exactly the same arguments being used now. Um, and I'd then, see, when we did the smoking legislation and we stopped smoking sponsorship, um, all these arguments came up and all the sports came in and said, we won't be able to find new funding, et cetera, et cetera. And they did. Now, okay, maybe they went to alcohol, maybe they went to gambling, but they did. F and, and if you look now... Uh, at the Premier League, for example, I think I'm right in saying that over half, this could be wrong, but I think I'm right in saying over half of the Premier League sides have betting sponsorship. Right. Now, I think with alcohol, it's kind of, there was a time, I don't even remember, Rangers and Celtic up in Scotland, both were sponsored by the same beer. Now, one of the, you talk to any policeman in Glasgow, one of the big things that I'm afraid goes with Celtic Rangers matches is domestic violence after. Now, you, you, you need to build arguments around that. Um, but I think it needs a bigger thing. I think it actually does need um, politicians brave enough to stand up and say, this is not working. We have a very, very unhealthy relationship, both with alcohol and with illegal drugs. And we have to address it in a better way than we're doing it. 
Uh, we're not going to be able to do this if we just make it part of the day-to-day knockabout Yabu politics. The minute I suggest change, I'm soft on crime, etc. We've got to bring in pr- a proper long-term evidence-based analysis of this. And I think you probably do. I'm not a big fan on royal commissions, but you need some sort of process like that. And actually, I think the Labour Party, I feel Labour generally, aren't doing enough on analysing the really big challenges facing the country, right across the piece, economy, health, education, crime, transport, the lot, and setting in place big policy development programmes now, bringing in outsiders. And to me, prison reform and drugs is an area where they could do that. And particularly with Keir's background, you know, in the law, I think, it'd be, I think it lends itself to his, to his expertise and his skills. From your very, very unique perspective, what's it like for policymakers and MPs to actually stand up and make those big decisions without any kind of bias for the good of the public health? Or are they in hock to the media backlash, their backbenches? You know, how does that play out? Uh, I mean, it depends. You do you do have a lot of... If I, if you, if I think of the smoke, that smoking, go, to go back to the smoking thing, or when we banned <clears throat> drinking in, you know, the workplace... Um, I remember, for example, it's an interesting one, the, the, the alcohol. I mean, Tony Blair, particularly when we had the, that massive majority, Tony was a very bold kind of leader and he, didn't, he wasn't scared of big decisions and what have you. But we waited to see how it played in Ireland before we did it. That was a very deliberate thing. The Irish led the way. And I remember we had a Tony and me and Tony had this conversation and he said, God, I can't believe the Irish are doing this. He said, I mean, you know, you think about their pub culture and smoking and you know, it kind of, you go to a pub in Ireland and it's, that's what it feels like. Are they really going to do that? And they did it. And of course it was fine. And then we did it. And then other countries did it. And I often talk about the Irish as having shown real leadership in that. So it doesn't, it's not just that you need politicians to stand up and do it. You need countries that will take a lead. And sometimes it's not the obvious country. And so, so like, you know, we talked about Portugal in relation to drugs. Portugal showed real leadership. And then the rest of the world, they're kind of keeping an eye on it and see how it's going. And, you know, that will lead to change in other countries, presumably down the track. Now, so what it's like with a big majority, it's easier than with, you know, if you're constantly scrabbling around for parliamentary votes. Our media is very, very difficult to manage. But I still think if you've got a principal position and you're willing to take the hits and you're willing to take the heat and argue for it, you can get through. I think we did lots of things which, you know, it's the old, I've got all these post-its up on my wall and um, and one of them is one of them is a famous quote from Mandela, everything's impossible until you make it happen. And that that's the that's how you have to think of it. You have to believe in yourself that you're doing the right thing. You have to build the arguments, have the evidence base and just keep going with it. That's, that's a really interesting point as well and, and a really interesting quote because with the smoking ban in pubs and things like that, at the time it was arguably contentious but there's no one asking for it to be repealed no. now it, it's it's there it's a public health measure that we think that's worked so do you think we can have the same ethos with regards to drugs that on the other side of reform if stroke when it does happen that we'll go why didn't we do that sooner well that is if you think if that if mandela's right everything's impossible until you make it happen you could argue 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago what you were arguing for, you'd have said was impossible. And it probably feels impossible now, right, with this lot. But they're going to go, they're going to change, change will come. And look, change can come for the worse or for the better. You can go forwards, you can go backwards. But I still think, ultimately, look, put it this way. If we don't end up with a more informed, intelligent policy debate, not just on this issue, but right across the piece, then we're absolutely fucked as a country. And I think on this, I just think it's one of those debates whose whose time has come. And that doesn't mean it's going to change overnight. I don't think it will. But and I also, I'd, the other thing is to say, I don't think you can do it divorce from divorce, um, reform of the criminal justice system, reform of prisons. I think, I think they are part of the same. So I, I actually would, <clears throat> in a funny sort of way, you know, when we talk about big, big reviews of what have you, I think, in a, I think a big review... Maybe not so much the criminal justice system, but certainly the prison system. Um, and, you know, I've just been reading this book by Angela Kerwin, Criminal, which a lot of focus on the criminal, on the, the re- rehabilitative prison system in Norway, for example. Now, OK, you can Norway, one of the richest countries in the world. 
uh, don't necessarily have a lot of our economic and social problems, but they've got a very different prison system and the rehabilitative side is much more effective. That surely is what it's about. So I, I would maybe put drugs into that. Yeah, you, you make a really good point that drugs are part of the bigger system. And you mentioned that you, you do a lot of work in prisons. Can I, can I quiz you on that? Of When did you get started on, on, on your prison work and, and what have you seen and, and learned by doing that? Well, I've been doing the kind of mental health stuff for quite a long time and I just started going. I actually, one of the key moments on that, I went to, I got invited to an event at Lambeth Palace by the Archbishop um, and just went along and it was a, it was a kind of musical thing and, and what have you. And there were lots of people there and different sorts of people. And I met uh, a woman who works at Pentonville uh, in, in the chaplaincy. She's a chaplain. Um, and she was with one of the mental health teams, one of the mental health nurses who works in the, worked in the prison. And they just said, look, you know, you do loads of mental health, why don't you just come and have a look at what we do, what we try to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I go in, and I mean, these people are like saints. They really are like saints. They're just like, they're so, un, they're so under pressure, they're so under-resourced, but they're just dealing with these really, really, really tough cases. And uh, um, so, you, you know, I think what... what it's always interesting, I'm sure you've had this experience, of talking to people who are basically drug addicts, um, who are in a position where they maybe can't, don't have access. I think they do, a lot of people in prisons do have access to drugs, but they don't have access to the drugs in the same way as they do outside, and they're not necessarily engaged in the same habits to get the drugs or to get the money for the drugs, etc. <clears throat> but but it was just interesting to talk to talk to people about where they were and even if they were clean at the time and you could tell that they were you could see at the back of their eyes that they weren't fixed that you know they weren't they weren't and 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 I'm not blaming anybody in the prison system for that because they just don't have the time they don't really have the resources to and and, and what I'd say is that I think that our prisons um a lot of them, particularly the old Victorian prisons, I, I can't think of a... I think if you were to build an environment that said, uh, right, you're going to go in here because you've got an addiction problem, uh, if I were to think of an environment least likely, less likely to <laughs> to get you cured, I think it would be a prison. I think it would be one of our old prisons. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's, it's enclosed. It's with fellow, you know, potentially really bad people. Why wouldn't you seek some kind of release within that system? It, it just makes sense that drugs arrive. And it's and 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 also it's. I think it's part of the part of the hierarchy yeah. as well. That you know, you 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 find. Funny enough, I was talking to Joey Barton the other day about his time in prison. He says you've got to you've got to work out where you sit in the system. And he basically sat in a kind of keep my head down make sure people know they can't mess around with me, but I'm not going to be running anything, you know, whereas others, particularly if they're vulnerable, you know, other people are going to decide where you sit. And, and you know, you might be the person who's being targeted because they know that, you know, you need drugs and they know how to help you get them, but you're going to have to do things for them. Um, and I saw some horrible, truly horrible examples of, uh, of self-harm of people who were really, 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 really struggling. Uh, that, you know, you just think, I know, you know, the hospitals are stretched and everything, but you just see people, you think, these guys are ill, they're not going to get better here. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So to really put you on the spot then, so you, you've mentioned the, the Norway system and your own personal work. What would you do about reforming the criminal justice system? If you were, if you were prime minister tomorrow, how would you go about that? I mean, this is this is a situation where it's easy for me to say because I'm not a politician. Uh, but I think I would make the case for fewer custodial sentences, uh, f- major investment in um, addiction education in schools, uh, re- reform of. I think. I think. Look, I think the criminal justice system, it, oh, by the, which, by the way, is really badly underinvested after a decade of austerity um but i th- I, th- I think those for me would be is about i think education uh and support for kids who are likely to be vulnerable uh in relation to you know whether it's family background community background whatever it might be but i think i i just think we're sending so many people to prison for crimes which are a product of addiction and it's the addiction we should be treating not the crime and that's a tough thing to say for a politician yeah Uh, funny enough that does lead me to to quite a good point because it is a tough thing to say for a politician but there is someone doing that as we speak uh Sadiq Khan uh Mm. mayor of London he is doing some pretty bold moves with regards to looking at decriminalisation process because the other aspect of criminalisation is disproportionate. Yeah. You know, it falls on the shoulders of the underprivileged. Um, so what's your view of what Sadiq's doing uh, and how does that fit in with the bigger picture? Can, can we get that movement further up in the Westminster chain? Well, I mean, is it, I, think, look, I think Sadiq's done a lot of good stuff, but if you think about it, he, he's responsible for policing, right, in London, but he's not responsible for the law, Uh that is in the hands of Pretty Patel. Well, good luck with that. Um, so I, I, I go back to the... Look, I think that one of the interesting things about having elected mayors, high-profile elected mayors like him or Andy Burnham or Andy Street in Birmingham or Steve Rotherham in Liverpool, Tracy Rabin in Yorkshire, you've got people who do have the ability to shift debate. Right? Now, that's, you know, that's kind of how I see my position I, I i not not you know i'm not saying i'm like steve calm but i i do have i pick my debates carefully and i try and shift the dial on them you know it's sometimes you do it i think on the mental health thing i think we've done it reasonably i think we've shifted the dial i think on this i think we're still struggling a bit um but i think it will come i think it will come and and i think having somebody like sadiq saying the things he says focusing on it in the way that he does is good and, and listen from his background, that's a big risk. That's a big risk. And, you know, but I think people respect politicians who take, you know, take risks to do the right thing, even if it's difficult and unpopular with some people. With, with our finger in the air, you know, we, we are going to be biased what we do, but there does seem to be so much social media backlash to the to the hardline approach versus what a, a progressive approach like Sadiq's doing. There does, like, Pretty Patel's going out there doing a photo of police in bashing down doors, and it doesn't seem to work. Most people seem to get it that this is a really destructive path to go down, whereas when Sadiq does something like that... Well, I mean, the only thing I'd say about that, I don't ever... I don't think you should ever take your assessment of public opinion from social media. Uh, public opinion is a very kind of complicated, amorphous thing. But also what I would say is that Johnson, Patel, this lot, they're basically appealing to a pretty narrow, hopefully dwindling base right? Uh, and a lot of, you know, let's be honest, you, you talk to a lot of people, it, there is still a very strong element in this country of, you know, lock them up, throw away the key. There's a strong element of prison works. Punishment is good for you. Um, and, you know, there's no there's no possible reason or excuse to take drugs. Now, in an ideal world, that's 
I get that. I get that. But we're we're so far from being an ideal world. So with your with your comms head on, we've just mentioned that Sadiq Khan is progressive. We touched upon it earlier that Keir Starmer doesn't seem to be that good. Uh, Emily Thornbury this very week has put out some quite contentious comments. Uh, and also, just the, as you mentioned, there was a Labour campaign that was targeted at the Lib Dems, going, look, the Lib Dems are soft on drugs. So there seems to be a real rollback with, with regards to what the messaging is in the Labour Party. What can we do to just go about changing that, both in terms of the public eye, but also in the Labour Party itself? Well, you can only do, you know, you, you can only do what you do. Uh, you can just make the, you can just keep making the argument. Um and 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 I think from my perspective, I mean, I don't I, I don't want to be seen as somebody. A lot of criticise this government for all it's worth, and I you know I, at times I'm critical of the Labour leadership. I have been on Brexit. I have been on on other issues. I don't want to just become one of those kind of you know even though they kicked me out of the party over Brexit, I don't want to kind of just slag them off the whole time. But I do think it's this broader point about with the country in such a mess, people are looking for leadership and big policy positions that set a different course uh, right across the piece, you know. And and therefore, I would say that part of the argument I make to Labour politicians when I talk to them is, is that, look, you know, I think you underestimate the extent to which the country's crying out for change. Now, in this area, for heaven's sake, don't get hung up on populist policy positions that aren't working. You know, there's people aren't stupid. You know, well, some some people might be, but most people are. You know, they'll they'll open themselves to an argument. You you know, you mentioned that you mentioned the smoking thing. If 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 we'd have been trapped in that mindset that says, oh, you can't fiddle with people's freedom, I mean, there was a massive campaign. This is an assault on freedom, right? There was a massive campaign funded by the right, funded by the tobacco companies, right? We just saw them down. You know, we, we, we built the arguments and we saw them down. And, and likewise with, you know, look at the gay rights issue. Just, just think how that's changed. You know, everything is impossible until you make it happen. If everybody had just said, ooh, gay, ooh, ooh, better just go a bit easy on that. It's not how you make change. This, this is why I was really interested to speak to you because I hold my hands up that I'm basically the kind of marketing person of, of, of what we do. You know, I'm there to try and get, as you said, the people that don't care, that aren't on social media to pay attention. So if you used to give me advice from a really, really well-seasoned person on comms, how would I go about this to change things? Well, it's interesting. The government had a pretty effective piece of communication, I thought, around, and David Lammy's been very good on this as well, about making that link between middle-class drug-taking and, you know, problems in everybody else's life. Like, the, you know, whether it's police resourcing, whether it's, you know, the creation of a kind of illegal economy. Uh, so it's linking, I guess what I would say, is you've got to link the arguments that you want to take forward to make reform to the lives of people who are not interested in your issue. Um, and that, you know, I think that's quite an interesting challenge for you guys. I think how you... In other words, don't don't see it as a kind of siloed issue separate from every other part of our lives. You know, every time look, I mentioned walking down on the canal, right? I go, if I'm if I go down the canal, you know, I'm not alone in this. You you, you see people whether they're whether it's drink drink or it's drugs, it affects the quality of your life, right? Now, are we just going to let those numbers grow. I'll give you another example. COVID, right? COVID comes along and suddenly we can find a home. We can find a hotel for everybody who's on the streets, right? They're now back, right? If I were you, I'd maybe mount a little campaign around that. How come we got help for these people when they were a threat to you, Rishi Sunak, when they were offending your quality of life, middle-class person? But now that COVID's quote's over, even though it's not, now that we're back to normal, they're back. Why is that normality allowed when it when we saw that we could deal with it? Right? And then build the argument that actually we all felt better thinking that there weren't so many people sleeping on the streets, that we didn't have to kind of, you know, worry about 
being harassed by people who are begging for money or whatever. Well, every time you get in the tube, like you know, virtually every day, every time I go in the tube these days, there's somebody coming round asking for money for a hostel, right? Well, how come we were able to deal with it then, but we can't deal with it now? You, you mentioned Johan Harry's book changed your perception quite a lot, and he says, you know, the, the tagline of the whole book is the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's collection, and this leads to your mental health work. How much time do you pour into your mental health work and what do you do and, and what can we learn from that whole big discussion with regards to on its own, but also how it fits into the criminal justice system? Um, it's hard to answer that because, I mean, what I do, I do lots of different things, but I do obviously a lot of advocacy and a lot of talking and writing. So, you know, my books take up quite a lot of time. Writing about it takes up a lot of time. Advising different charities and different organisations trying to get the... I've, I've sort of given up with this government. I think we've got to wait for a decent government before we're actually going to get a proper mental health strategy. But, you know, what would that look like if you were? So now, actually, you know, trying to get the Labour Party maybe to do a bit more on mental health. Um, and then the rest of it is is really just, you know, just kind of... <laughs> I guess, you know, I do a lot of media on it, and that's about trying to move the dial. Um, I'm about to, you know, get involved in another in another project much more related to suicide prevention for example um so i just kind of i don't know i just i do i've I never put a clock on it but i do something related to it every day probably um you know whether it's an hour or two hours most days i'll do something related to mental health campaigning does it help your own mental health doing this oh 100 100 percent. um i find i find the openness helps me i find i find the fact that i mean i can't promise that i read all of them but i get sent a lot of stuff about it and i find that i do get good ideas from other people about dealing with my own mental health um and who was who was i talking to the other day oh it's marvin sordell former footballer and he said you know it's nice when people say love what you're doing you're really making change he said that's great but you know, I really get a lot out of it myself for my mental health, and, and I, I feel like that. So just to, to wrap up, because I'm conscious of your time now, uh, again, this is going to be a really broad point. So if you was to if we were to have this conversation in 10 years' time, how do you think we would do, have developed or would we have developed? Are we still going to be stuck, stuck in the same hole? What's going to be your prophecy? I, I, I really don't know. If I, You know, I think if, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. Um, I sort of feel on the mental health agenda, I feel we've been close to a tipping point and I thought we were just about there. I thought we were just about there. Funny enough, I thought when Cameron was in, I thought we were just getting there. And I feel, I feel it's gone backwards a lot. Um, but the fact that we were nearly there, I think means that, you know, although we've gone backwards, we're still way ahead of where we were. Um, I think on, on your issue, on drug reform, I think it's impossible to tell. It's impossible to tell because I think it's going to take, it's going to take politicians of real clout and courage to come along and say, this has got to change. And then when they get, get into power, they've got to change it. But it's not going to come from this government, no way. Yeah, that's, that's, I suppose that is going to be my next question, actually, is that undeniably, you know, I have to be kind of a, a little bit set back and not push my views forward because of a single issue. But you can't deny there's a lot of clutter going on with politics. Presumably, that's affected issues like mental health drug policy. Yeah, I think mental health... Uh, look, I think... I think there was, I remember during when Cameron was Prime Minister and, you know, we I started this campaign with Norman Lamb, who was the mental health minister, Lib Dem, and Andrew Mitchell, Tory. And... Osborne stood up in the House of Commons at a budget or a spending review and announced an extra 600 million quid and said it was, you know, he'd been persuaded by this campaign. Now, I know there's politics attached to that, right? But at the same time, that said to me, these guys understand they've got to get with the programme on mental health, right? I think that's gone. I think that's gone. I mean, you know, do you know who the mental health minister is? I actually don't, no, safely. Gillian Keegan. Do you, know who was, do you know who it was before her? No, actually, shamefully. Nadine Dorries. Yes, I'm aware, yeah. 
<laughs> so, you know, we're not talking about giving it to, you know, somebody who's getting the go-ahead of the Prime Minister to really push on. We're getting it to somebody who's, you know, got the job because he wants to give them a job. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I do think Labour... Um, I think Rosina Allen-Khan has is, is got, you know, she's got a proper... That's her job, just doing mental health. And I think she's really worked hard at trying to get a, a bigger profile for it. Um, but ultimately, I'd, I'd, I'd love it if, you know, one of the... If, if Keir Starmer were to say, look, you know, mental health's going to be like... Obviously, we're coming out of COVID, we've got to rebuild the health service, etc. But, you know, a preventive mental health strategy, a preventive rehabilitative prisons approach, a preventive education on addiction in schools approach is going to save lives and it's going to save money. It, it, does that long-termism, does that, does that play into the kind of pitfalls of current politics? Because everything is about presumably short-termism, but preventative measures. Well, it's very, it's hard. It's like, I'm just reading this book at the moment. It's a biography of Xi Jinping. Uh, and my God, it's a lot easier when you're a president for life and you just trot out five-year plans every five years. It's just like, you know, it's, uh, it is harder, you know, but that's, that's the, that's the, if you like, the, there's lots of upsides to democracy, but in a way that's the downside. It is that, that sort of the, the constant turning of the electoral cycle and the, and particularly in our country, because we don't really have a serious media in the way that we used to, I don't think. We don't have a serious media like they do in Germany or, you know, I was mentioned being in Portugal last week. I think one of the reasons Portugal was able to do what they did is that even their tabloid media is pretty serious. You know, they really go into stuff in in, in kind of detail and there is still that sort of separation of news and comment in a way that I think we've just lost it. Um, so... Look, I, 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 some days I'm optimistic we're going to get change. Other days, I mean, at the moment with this lot, it's hard to see how any change for the better comes until they're gone. Could cross-party work? Because we found a lot of times that the, the, the consensus for drug policy reform is dotted around the parties and that they come together. Yeah, I, I do think that's another thing you guys could do usefully is actually to bring those voices together and find surprising voices as well. Um you know, and, and it, look, I think there's no doubt when you think that, if you think, you mentioned Rory Stewart, but you think like people like him, Ken Clark, Dominic Grieve, Anna Subri, you know, uh, Heidi Allen, no place in the Tory party for those people. It's the Tory party's become kind of, you know, a right-wing rump. It's the, it is the, it's the tail wagging the dog, right? Well, that's not going to change for a while. So I think that maybe getting those people back involved in some of these debates might be useful. But also, I think if you get into the backbenches, you'll find there are more, possibly more progressive voices than you realise, but you've just got to dig hard to get them. And we found as well that the, the people of the 90s and the noughties, like William Hague, uh, mm. Lord, Lord Falconer, who's who's a member of Leap UK, yeah, these are people as well that are really coming out with some pretty progressive views. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, of course, Charlie's also leading the way on... Um, uh, you know, assisted suicide, and and uh, no, I th- I think I think we're sort of we're stuck at the moment as a country. We're stuck in this kind of populist rubbish, and it's very hard to move it on. But I think when it moves on, it's like look what's just happened in Australia. We had some friends around yesterday from Australia, and like there's all sorts of stuff that's already happening now that Scott Morrison's gone and they've got a new Labour government in. It's like change that. It wasn't even necessarily part of the debate. It's just suddenly changing. And that's kind of what we're going to get to. But Labour's got to get there. It's not going to fall in their lap. I suppose this is going to be my last point because I'm very conscious of time. But I suppose that was because I, I was uh, in my teens in the late 90s when Labour and, and New Labour came in. And you didn't have to support them to, to see that there was a real big urge uh, or, or surge of, of hope. You know, there was this, because we had so long of a, of a, of a conservative government, just that change felt that gave people hope. Yeah. So do you yeah. think we could possibly get that again where it doesn't matter who the party is, if there's just a significant change of culture shift in the politics? Oh, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think if, look, I think if this government were to fall over tomorrow, and a kind of sort of a chaotic kind of mix of all sorts of stuff came in, but there was a leadership figure that was holding it together. I think the country go, thank God for that, you know. But then you've got to do stuff, and um, uh, you know. And I, I just think these, I think this is one of those issues where 
I think on the mental health agenda, I think we're really going to look back and think, why did it take so long to get to a place where we had proper preventive mental health strategies? Why did it take so long before we started to treat addiction more as an illness than as a crime? Why did that take so long? It's, it's sort of, it's kind of mind-blowingly obvious. So along that point, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up because it's such an <laughs> obvious, salient point. So thank you so much, Alistair, for doing that. Not at all, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I know I say this every time, but I did find that generally fascinating. Every guest brings something different to this platform and Alistair was no exception. I think his experience speaks for itself. So to get his perspective was just fascinating. Thank you so much, Alistair. Please do find his podcast. Please do find him on Twitter and read his books. And on the thank yous, thank you to Nikki Elson for producing this show, everything you do. Thank you to John and Tristan for producing what you do as well. Thank you to John Harris at the Distractions Pieces Network. Yay for John Harris. He is a hero. Thank you so much to Scroobius Pip for having this on the Distraction Pieces Network. Go find all the other shows. They're huge. They're brilliant. They're amazing. And thank you for listening. And you know what you got to do. Don't just agree with us. Like, share, subscribe. Give us nice reviews if you can as well. That all helps. All of that stuff. You know what to do. Uh, thank you to my name is Ad for the Artwork and to Johnny Borrell for the theme tune. So until next time, get subscribing so you don't miss out on any episodes. Thanks a lot. We'll see you later. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray